Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Brave-Hearted Man. We have an epidemic of cowardly, lily-livered, namby-pamby, limp-wristed boys parading about as full-grown men. However, when the moment of testing comes, these sort of men shriek and hide in a corner. God, however, takes a man and builds him into a dauntless, brave-hearted warrior who will plunge headlong into the hordes of hell to rescue the least of these for the glory of the King. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The brave-hearted man. Uh, I've been uh, itching for this morning. Uh, now this is, I, by the way, I've never given this message. I know it sounds like a message I would have given. I have a book called The Bravehearted Gospel. It's about sticking the manly stuff back in Christianity. And this isn't that, but it's not that far removed. This is about sticking the manly stuff back in the man. Now, at the same time, for all of you girls in here that are like, what? Well, I'm not a man. How in the world am I supposed to relate to this message? You're going to realize that the principles that are discussed today in The Bravehearted Man is everything that must be realized. In you as a woman. There is certain illustrations that I'm going to give to demonstrate how this plays out in the life. And it's ironic how the Bible does this. But it uses a woman in certain key moments in scripture to demonstrate this exact principle. So this is a principle of the man. Do you guys know who the brave hearted man is? His name is Jesus. And so all of you women in here or girls in here, if you're in Jesus Christ, then you have the privilege of being brought into the very throne room of grace by the merits of his shed blood. And when you are brought near by the blood of Jesus, you know what that means? That means you've been prepared as a vessel to be filled with the very life of God. That means, catch this before we even begin, that the brave-hearted man lives in you. I know it sounds a little strange to have a man inside of you. Paul calls the flesh inside of you the old man. So as girls, uh, you either have the old man inside of you, which is, you know, not that attractive, by the way, or you have the brave-hearted man. So pick uh, pick your man, if you will. This is an exciting message. The brave-hearted soldier... See, the term brave-hearted does not come from a movie. It comes from soldiering. It comes from military maneuvering. You see, there's a certain type of soldier that would be defined as a brave-hearted soldier. And let me give you the definition. He's a soldier that has acted with the most illustrious courage, repelling the enemy at the point of greatest threat, and demonstrating an undauntedness in the face of enemy fire. That is a brave-hearted soldier. He is undaunted in the midst of enemy fire. I don't know how well you do when bullets are whizzing your way, but most of us cower. Most of us look for a place to hide. A brave-hearted soldier charges. He meets the enemy at the point of the greatest threat. Not the minor threat. To be honest, most of us as guys, if we're going to rise up and do something noble, we're looking for the most minor threat to stand against, not the greatest threat. Think about Jesus, your brave-hearted man. What did he do? He went right into the jaws of the greatest threat. What he models is so far beyond what any of us can comprehend. The model of Jesus Christ 
When you begin to actually relate to it and say, are you saying, Jesus, that I'm literally supposed to walk in those shoes? I, I, I mean, that's staggering. Yes, it is. That's why the gospel hinges on the concept that you can't walk in those shoes. He can. Christianity is all made possible by you letting go of your life and letting the brave-hearted man, if you will, or the brave-hearted soldier himself enter in and take possession. The self-preserving mindset. The first thing I want to do is I want to discuss the fact that we as men are groomed, and I could just say it this way, we come out of the womb, the spiritual womb, with an issue. And that is that we are selfish. Now, if any of you have spent time at Ellerslie, you know when I'm defining sin, I talk about the body. I talk about, you know, this being the body, and these are the ribs right here. And then there's this glassed-in corner office. We could call it the director's chamber. There's a chair in there. It's the director's chair. And who sits on it? We do. We're not supposed to sit on it. When we sit in that chair, that's the principle of sin. You see, we are all born, in a sense, in that chair. We are all wrong in our disposition. And it's called selfishness. This life is about us. However, when our life is about us, it doesn't work. And the wages of this self-centered existence is death. So the self-preserving mindset, this is what every guy lugs around. You're tired. Let someone else carry the weight. Let someone else bear the burden for this one. You see, you can be trained as a noble man, and a lot of the men in here have an understanding of what it means to be a strong and triumphant man of God, which is an unusual thing in this culture, by the way. The guys here at Ellerslie know it, and yet, even in knowing it, there is still a self-preserving mindset that we need to poke at and stick our finger on, because, you know, we can labor day in and day out, and it's hard work to... Just keep pressing forward as a strong man. Some of the guys in here have spent hours upon their knees in prayer. You know what? Let someone else do it for a season. I can't carry all that weight. Well, you're right. But he can. You have to realize this mindset will cripple your masculinity. It'll cripple your Christianity. You're tired. Let someone else carry the weight. Let someone else bear the burden for this one. This is a critical dimension in your life, but I want you to realize that little plea in your soul, I want you to mark it, I want you to tag it. When you hear that justification, here's one thing I can tell you from my years of experience. That never leads to any good thing. That thought pattern, which I've had many times being a leader, it's like, man, I've been carrying this weight for a long time. Let someone else lead for a little. Someone else can do this for a season. I need some time off. Hmm. The self-expending mindset. Okay, brace yourselves for this one. A hundred percent in every situation. This is what I've been wrestling with this week. I remember I was praying earlier in the week when this message was beginning to bud and form. And one of the issues had to do with, there was a bait. It was a momentary bait for self-pity. I'm, I'm familiar with it, okay? It's knocked many times in the past. How do you handle self-pity? No. No, no, no. Not a second given to self-pity. Not a second. But when you're a man, I tell you what. I know it's not just men, okay? 
But when you've been carrying weights, I have a lot of weights on my shoulder. But there is a bait to say, you know what? Not 100% in this moment. How about 80? And then if you start giving 80, how about not 80%, how about 50? Pretty soon you find yourself lounging, waiting for someone to fan you and feed you grapes. The opposite is true of a man. It's 100% in every circumstance. There is a growl within the soul that says, exert, exert. And you lean on the grace of God in every moment to rise up, even when you're starting to feel weak. And those around you are like, please, Eric, one more step. Please, Eric, could you do this? Yes. Yes! The answer is yes. There's 100% readiness at every turn to be obedient to Jesus Christ. The post office principle. Those of you that have gone through Ellerslie understand the post office principle. Don't read the second part here. That should have been a separate slide. Okay, hey, I see Andrew trying to read it. Uh-huh. Uh, look at that. Uh, I tell these guys not to think of an elephant on the top of the Eiffel Tower. You know what they think of immediately? An elephant on the top of the Eiffel Tower. You'd think they'd listen better. Okay. Post office principle. It's the principle that they teach at the post office. Okay, at least I suppose they teach at the post office. You can have a line out the door at the post office, but that post office employee will give you 100% of their attention. They'll listen to you, and they'll stand there for an hour talking to you, even if the line goes down the road a mile. They're trained to focus. Bombs could be going off. You know, war alerts. And they're like, yes, sir, how can I help you? It's actually very impressive, okay? That's... The way we are engaged in relationship. And I want you to know, men can easily be distracted. Okay? Now, women have this quality of multitasking. So they can somehow give a little of themselves here, a little of themselves to seven other conversations around them in Starbucks. I'm not exactly sure how that works. But a guy, if he gets distracted by another conversation at Starbucks, guess what? He's out of this one. Okay? So the post office principle is 100% givenness to that which is in front of you. It's an issue of honor that we teach at Ellerslie. That when someone is talking to you, you engage them. You are absorbed in their life and you focus on them. And I tell you what, it's hard, especially as a leader. There's noise around you. There's people waiting in line around you. I deal with this all the time. To be 100% focused is a great challenge. But I tell you what, it's an issue of showing honor and love to the person you're talking to. Okay, so that's the post office principle. Now, the post office principle gone inward. Your assignment is right in front of you. Be fully present, fully given, fully deposited. Everything needed for absolute engagement will be supplied. When God gives you an assignment as a man, and whether that's in your marriage, whether that's with your children, and whether it's uh, with your ministry, whether it's with your job, you give your full self 100% of yourself to that job in front of you. You give yourself. Okay? That's the post office principle. Bombs can be going off around you, but you've been given an assignment. And if it's a God assignment, you do not take your eyes off of it. You work it until it's done, and you do it well. 100%. Sounds like something from Horton Hears a Who, doesn't it? Uh, I wish I could remember the quote from Horton. It's a good one. Uh, But elephants give 100%. May it be said of us, that we give 100%. Now here's the scary part about giving 100%. What if you run out? What if you don't have anything for the next task? Well, that's where faith comes in. You have to realize that when you obey God and you give everything God has given you, as we always say at Ellerslie, if God's given you a penny, what should you do with it? Invest it on God. What if he doesn't come through? What if I lose my penny? Oh no! 
You give a penny, you know what you'll get back? 10 bucks. But you have to risk your penny, and you have to risk 100% of that penny. I know a penny is not the best illustration for risking 100% of a penny. But then when you have your $10, what do you do? Do you hold it and go, okay, at least I have $10 now. I'm going to just call it good right now. No, you stick all the $10 on the table. You say, on my God, I trust him implicitly. And guess what? Yeah, you get $1,000 back. That's God's, God has really good interest rates. And that's how faith grows. Faith grows through witnessing God's faithfulness. You have a certain amount of energy in your life. And what does God ask for? Um, <clears throat> 100%. You go into a prayer time, you wake up in the morning, guess what God's asking for? Be fully present, fully engaged. Not half here, all here. You know what? This will change your masculinity. Now, I want you to realize this affects all the people in this room, but I'm painting a picture for men especially, since that is a huge issue for us. My God asked me to watch with him. Remember the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus comes up to Peter, James, and John and says, watch with me. And guess what? They fall asleep. When Jesus comes up to us and says, watch with me, he wakes us up in the night. Oh, that's a hard one. When he wakes us up in the night and we have a burden and it's like, Eric, would you watch with me? Have you ever felt so tired in your life? Oh, it's just like you could just feel the suction into your pillow. Watch with me. What do you do as a man? You rise up and you exert. You stick your feet on the floor if necessary. You don't kneel. What happens when you kneel? You start drooling and fall asleep on your bed. You must exert. You must rise up. My God needs me and he needs me now. My wife asked me to stay up and talk with her. Have you ever felt so tired in your life? Oh, boy, just... Uh, Sorry, honey, but I am just so tired right now. You were fine until she asked you to stay up and talk with her. <laughs> What's going on here? Exert, rise up, give 100% in that moment. I know you're tired. Defy it because you are needed on the battlefield right now. This is what you are a man for. You must give yourself in such a moment. My children ask me for special attention. That's right when you're the busiest, too. You got this distraction going on over here, this over here, and your kids need special attention. Ah! No, oh, that's a hard one. What matters to God? What is a man built for? He's built for his God, he's built for his wife, and he's built for his children, primarily. You see, if you can't prove to give 100% in those categories, then you are not fit to lead the church of Jesus Christ. You are proven, first and foremost, in that arena. So do not justify turning away and turning a blind eye or a deaf ear to the primary to serve the secondary. We must serve the primary well. My disciples need to be pulled through. Welcome to Ellerslie. We go through this three semesters a year. And there's great need that shows up on campus. And every single one of us that's students here could nod and say, yep, there's great need. Well, do you think there's need here? Just look outside these doors. You know how many people need to be pulled through from death into life? And it is a wrestling match. We know that here at Ellerslie. This is not easy. Discipleship is hard work. Someone needs to be pulled through. They need to be brought unto life. And you're tired. Uh-huh. You're always tired. 
If you aren't ready to give in those moments that God assigns you, you're not being a man. This is what we're built for. We're built to be strong for the weak. My staff is in need of my strength. You'll notice this list happens to fit my life fairly well. Uh I have a staff and they need my strength. Well, you know what? There there was a day, I remember uh, a day earlier in this semester when we had, it was a praying through day where, remember, uh, the, the students will describe it as the men coming in through the back with their faces radiant. When I was done with that day, I remember we had a staff meeting that night, so it must have been a Tuesday. And I had a staff meeting that night. I literally felt like I was going to fall off my chair. I was so exhausted. I mean, I was exhausted. I teach spiritual athletes. So, I mean, I teach people to be strong and sound of body, sound of mind. And I remember looking across and there was Sandy on the other side of the uh, living room. And she's ready to tip over too. I don't know how Ben was feeling. But we were spent. Well, what... What do we do in a situation like that? Just fall asleep on the floor, have a staff, uh, you know, slumber party? <laughs> you rise up and you say, okay, guys, I know we're tired, but we have a job to do. Okay, this is not the time to drop the sword. This is the time to rise up and exert the little we have left. A hundred percent of that which we have left in us, let's give it now. The weak are desperate for my help. Oh, there's so many weak out there. Mm-hmm. And they're desperate for my help. What we want to do is conserve some of our strength. Because we might run out if we don't preserve some of our strength. And what does God say? All of it. Well, God, if, if I give this up, I won't make it. Trust me. You have to give the little you do have. My hard-earned resources are required for the glory of God. Let's emphasize hard-earned. Those are hard-earned resources. And God, you make it sound so easy just for me to give it. That's a lot. And they're required. You know that there are weak all over this world? And if we hold on to the riches and the wealth that we have, did you know that people will go without? When if we turn out as a body and begin to take Whether it's the strength, whether it's the energy, whether it's the time, whether it is the resources, the monetary resources, or the uh, skill resources that we have and give, I tell you what, we have something. You were not given what you were given just to hold on to it. You were given it to give it. Uh, uh, You guys are waiting for that Greek word to come back. Okay. Here's a Greek word for the day. I don't know. I may have more than one. So this is one of the Greek words for the day. Andrizomai. Uh, you, you need to say it with a deep, bassy voice. Andrizomai. Uh, it sounded a little like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger there. Uh, it is actually a word that means in the Greek, be a man. It's a biblical word. Paul actually exhorts the body of Christ. Andrizomai. Be a man! Isn't that strange? Being the women in here, you're like, how am I supposed to respond to that? You see, there's a way that a man ought to be, and everyone knows it. A man stands up and rises in the most difficult situations. And so there's an exhortation to the body of Christ. Sure, it's difficult. Sure, you're running on empty. But be a man! And dridzomai! It means to show oneself a man, to be brave, to prove oneself a brave-hearted man. Isn't that great? I love the fact that that's in the Bible. I love it. 
I want to be a man. I do. There is a coward inside of me, just like there's a coward inside of you. There's a very tired man inside of me, just like there has a tendency to be inside of you. What do I do about it? I call on the brave-hearted man. And I say, hey, brave-hearted man, I'm not looking that impressive in my own strength. Could you come and dwell within me and be brave-hearted within me? Watch you stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. That word, quit you like men, means is andrizomai. Be a man. So, could you imagine? Paul is literally saying to the church at Corinth, Watch you. Be vigilant. Know your surroundings. Stand fast in the faith. Immovable. No matter what comes against you, do not be shaken. And prove yourself brave-hearted. Be strong. Oh, could you imagine if in the body of Christ that's what we got to hear? That is literally a war cry. That's a challenge under the troops. Rise up. Be strong, men. We need you now. Do not cower now. In the moment of the greatest need, we need you focused. Men get tired at the greatest point of need. We think the greatest point of need is when we're at work, we're tinkering around on the computer, we're answering phone calls from clients. That is not the greatest point of need. The greatest point of need is when you're on your knees praying. The greatest point of need is when the word of God is laid open before you and God is attempting to inculcate the depths of his kingdom understanding into a man on this earth so that he can live it before this earth. The greatest point of need is when that wife of yours needs a listening ear. She needs to feel protected, comforted. The greatest point of need is when your child is looking up at you saying, Daddy, a little time. The greatest point of need might shock you. That's when we as men are needed most. And that's usually where we present ourselves least available. Built for the impossible battles. When everyone else flags, the brave-hearted man's hand cleaves unto the hilt of the sword. Everyone else around you could be dropping their sword going, Hey, guys, I can't handle any more of this. This is too much. No one told me that Christianity was going to be so intense. Everyone else drops their sword. What does the brave-hearted soldier do? He grips his all the harder. He cleaves his hand under the hilt. You ever seen one of those wraps? It goes around the hand and, and holds your hand to something. You literally wrap it around where your hand cannot come loose from the sword. I will not let go. That's the brave-hearted man. You see, as we're going through this, you're going to realize that we have a propensity to be noble in the moment, especially here at Ellerslie. I mean, we can talk a big talk, but can we live a big life? Well, we will fail. So we have to be careful when we make grand statements with our mouth. What we want to do is make grand statements with our life. Instead of saying you will not let go of the sword, strap your hand to it in silence and say to yourself, that should do it. I am not going to let go of this. It's a resolve of the inner man to say, I must stand now. It's not for the other men around you. It's for Jesus. The hammer. Now, all the guys in here have heard me walk through the hammer. In fact, all the girl students in here have heard me uh, describe the return of the hammer. Uh, The hammer is the guy, okay? A man is like a hammer, Okay, we could give all sorts of illustrations for what men are like, but 
Men are like a hammer. And maybe not the most exotic instrument, but you know what? It gets the job done. A good old hammer, you know, is pretty useful. However, its job description isn't that fun. I don't know if any of you have ever studied the job description of a hammer. Look at the 1828 dictionary. An instrument for driving nails, beating metals, and the like. Now sign me up. And my. Yeah. We get to pound, use our face to pound nails into the woodwork. Break up rocks. Uh, what was the term? Beat metal? Well, who wants that job? I do. That's literally what a man says. Like, sign me up. Who signs up for the military? Why would anyone ever do that? And men literally will say, sign me up. I want to defend. A hammer is a tool meant to deliver an impact to an object. The most common uses are for driving nails, fitting parts, forging metal, and breaking up objects. Hammers are often designed for a specific purpose and vary widely in their shape and structure. The usual features are a handle and a head, with most of the weight in the head. You know, this is the exact structure of a man. This is the exact structure of a woman, too, if you think about it. But it's made of two parts, the handle and a head. You're the handle. Who's the head? Jesus. Who does all the real work? The head. However, he needs a handle to hold. In other words, a head without a handle isn't a very useful hammer. God has designed the way things work that he needs a handle. And then he fixes that iron head to it. And we simply say, use me. But who's the one taking the real blow? He did. So we're the little miniature versions. I gave this illustration. In fact, it seems like I gave it just a few weeks ago. But uh, snowstorm uh, at the Ludi house. Uh, driveway full of snow. Daddy goes out with his shovel to shovel the snow. Hudson catches the idea that he wants to be with Daddy and be like Daddy. So he has a little miniature shovel. He goes out there and is shoveling with Daddy. But his version of shoveling isn't quite accomplishing much. Let's just put it that way. He shovels something and then throws it up in the air and it lands back in the same area that daddy just shoveled. But he's out there and he lasts for a few minutes and then flags and is sitting off to the side. Then he goes in, comes back out, shovels, throws something up in the air. And comes. And at the end, you know what? When we're done, he walks in side by side with daddy. Comes up to mommy and says, mommy, we shoveled the walk. Daddy and I shoveled the, the driveway. And mom will go, wow. And you know what? Daddy will not correct him and say, actually, it was all daddy. (laughs) Daddy doesn't correct that. Why? Because I loved having my son there. It was a delight sharing in the job with my son. And I want him to share in the glory of the finished work. I want him to. However, who did the work? Mm -hmm. The head in this situation. The hammerhead. A hammer is a force amplifier that works by converting mechanical work into kinetic energy and back. I know that sounds a little scientifically over our heads. But it's a force amplifier. In this way, its great strength is not not needed to produce a force strong enough to bend steel or crack the hardest stone. You see, you take a handle and try and bend steel or or break down steel and, and crack open rocks, that little handle isn't going to be strong enough. But you put that heavy head on the end of it, and guess what? 
without even the need of a tremendous exertion of strength, there's an amplification or an increase of the strength in and through that hammerhead and handle combined. And so as a result, something weak like you, a handle, is actually able to be amplified in your strength when you receive that head on top. And literally, tough stone will be cracked open in and through that hammer. The force amplifier. Even a small exertion of wielded strength can be converted into that which might bend steel or crack the most indomitable stone. Uh, See, I like this stuff. We're rather weak. We're not that impressive, even though we like to think of ourselves as rather impressive. The quicker we sort of drain out of our system all the arrogance and thought of ourselves being something grand, the quicker we can become useful in the kingdom of heaven. You see, we are not the instrument. God is. But at the same time, we are. We are an instrument, but we're like the handle that needs the head to be fixed to it. And what the gospel produced was an opportunity for that head to be made available to us, the church, so that we could literally crack the most indomitable stone. This is sort of like a little proverb. We could call it a looty proverb. A hammer unused is steel unbent and stone uncracked. Doesn't that sound like I have sort of a Chinese flair to me? Listen to this. A hammer unused is steel unbent and stone uncracked. So we didn't write it in the proverb form. It just says a hammer unused. But what does it mean? If a hammer is not used, if a hammer is just discarded off to the side, it's like, oh yeah, I'm a hammer. Sure. But if that hammer is not wielded, guess what? Steel will remain bent and stone will remain uncracked. So what's the key? A hammer can't just be a hammer. A hammer must be wielded. The Maccabees. You guys ever heard of the Maccabees? There was a Maccabee revolt back uh, in that silent period, the 400 years between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew, when Jesus arrived on the scene. And the Maccabees, there's first and second Maccabees. It's part of the Apocrypha. And by the way, the Apocrypha isn't dangerous. It's just, you know, we're not going to consider it canon, which means it doesn't have the divine right to rule and control our lives like the rest of the 66 books of Scripture. It doesn't mean it's bad. It's actually extremely profound stuff inside of it. The Maccabees, uh, when I'm describing, Leslie and I have sort of a language that we use when we're describing the type of family we desire to grow up into. And one of the pictures is we want to be the Maccabees meets uh, the Booths. The Maccabees have all these sons, and I'm going to introduce them to you in just a second. I think it's like five sons. And when Papa Maccabee is taken down, because he stands up for the glory of God, he stands up and guess what? He's killed. Very common when you stand up for things uh, pertaining to truth and righteousness. He's killed, but then his next born son, or his first born son in this case, rises up and he's just like his dad. He has the same substance, the same character, the same quality. And then he's killed. So how about the second born son? He rises up. Five sons down. This is what happens. I mean, that's some thickness, some density of character in a family. You don't just invest in your firstborn and hope all goes well. You have this family dimension, this depth of strength. That was very inspiring to me when I first heard that. Second, the Booths. The Booths, William and Catherine Booth, they started the Salvation Army. They had like eight children. And each of the children went into ministry. 
In fact, I want to say, didn't all of them go into their ministry, Salvation Army? All over the world, they traveled. And even the men that married into their family and married their daughters took on the name Booth. They were so impressed with William and Catherine. They wanted to be just like them. You know, not many of us as parents have ever thought about having that type of respect from our children. That they would want to do what we do and be so impressed that even the men that marry our daughters would say, could I take on the name Booth? I mean, I don't know that I'd recommend that many guys wanting to take on the name Ludi, which supposedly in Japan means nerd. Could you imagine me having the discussion with the guy? He's like, no, I want to take on your name, man. You know, I, you just, I, I want what you have. I'm like, hey, buddy, in Japan it means nerd. And he goes, I don't care. That's a good moment. <laughs> okay, the Maccabees. You know what the Maccabees means? What Maccabee means? Hammer. That's what it means. Hammer. So this is a, a, a hammer that's pulled from the ancient tool bag in 167 BC. I'm going to introduce you to some hammers. I'm going to introduce you to some brave-hearted men throughout history. And I tell you what, it stirs you. 1 Maccabees 2, 1 through 28. So I'm going to read you a story. And this is a story that probably many of us have never read because it's not included in our Bible. But it's a good story. In those days arose Mattathias, the son of John, the son of Simeon, a priest of the sons of Jorib from Jerusalem, and dwelt in Modin, and he had five sons. Okay, so this guy is a priest, and he's from Jerusalem. Oh, I didn't read his son's name, sorry. John is the first. Simon, Judah, a.k.a. the hammer, Eleazar, and Jonathan. And when he saw the blasphemies that were committed in Judah in Jerusalem, this is Mattathias, he said, woe is me. Wherefore was I born to see this misery of my people and of the holy city and to dwell there when it was delivered into the hand of the enemy and, to the, and the sanctuary into the hand of strangers? The Greeks have infiltrated Jewish society. And they are overcoming the culture and actually turning it. And many of the Jews are becoming Hellenized, is what the term was. Which they're taking on Greek tradition. They're throwing aside their old Jewish roots and customs. And they're becoming Hellenized Jews. Well, meanwhile, one of the Greek officials is trying to bring in the sacrifice of profane animals into the altar and into the, the sacrificial, sacrificial offerings of the Jews. So they are commanding the Jews to sacrifice pigs on the altar. An unthinkable thing. It's an unclean animal. You sacrifice clean animals unto God. And the Jews commanded, I'm sorry, the Greeks came in and commanded that they do. Uh, <clears throat> what's a man to do? What's a Mattathias to do in such a time? So he says, Wherefore was I born to see this misery of my people and of the holy city and to dwell there when it was delivered into the hand of the enemy and the sanctuary into the hand of strangers? Her temple has become as a man without glory. Her glorious vessels are carried away into captivity. Her infants are slain in the streets. Her young men with the sword of the enemy. What nation has not had a part in her kingdom and gotten of her spoils? All her ornaments are taken away. Of a free woman she has become a bond slave. And behold, our sanctuary, even our beauty and our glory, is laid waste. And the Gentiles have profaned it. To what end, therefore, shall we live any longer? This guy's despairing of even life. 
Okay, I mean, everything that he holds dear. You know at Ellerslie, how we start out at banquet night and we say the godly man ceases. Truth has fallen in the streets. Judgment has turned away backwards. Exact same thing. This man is feeling it. He's sighing and crying over the abominations taking place in Israel. Okay, then follow this. This is good. Then Mattathias and his sons rent their clothes and put on sackcloth and mourned very sore. In the meanwhile, the king's officers, such as compelled the people to revolt, came into the city Modin to make them sacrifice. Uh Uh-oh, they've come to Modin. That's where the Maccabee family lives. Oh, no, I don't know if you guys know what you're doing. Mattathias with his five sons lives there. To make them sacrifice. Don't they know that there's a brave-hearted man in town? Uh. And when many of Israel came unto them, Mattathias also and his sons came together. Then answered the king's officers and said to Mattathias on this wise, Thou art a ruler and an honorable and great man in this city, and strengthened with sons and brethren. Now therefore come thou first. And fulfill the king's commandment like as all the heathen have done. Yea, and the men of Judah also, and such as remain at Jerusalem. So shalt thou and thy house be in the number of the king's friends. And thou and thy children shall be honored with silver and gold and many rewards. It'll go well with you, Mattathias. You come into agreement with us, you'll be considered one of the king's friends. We'll give you riches. You leverage your position in this city. It'll go well with you. Take the pig, sacrifice it on the altar. Then Mattathias answered and spoke with a loud voice. Though all the nations that are under the king's dominion obey him, and fall away every one from the religion of their fathers, and give consent to his commandments, yet will I and my sons and my brethren walk in the covenant of our fathers. God forbid that we should forsake the law and the ordinances. We will not hearken to the king's word to go from our religion, either on the right hand or the left. Now when he had left speaking these words, there came one of the Jews in the sight of all to sacrifice on the altar, which was at Modin. So one guy rises up and he's like, I'll show you. This is how it's done. Hey people, follow me. Don't follow Mattathias. He's going to get us in trouble. Okay? Leave him to his own doom. Follow me. So he comes up to the altar to sacrifice a pig on Jehovah's altar. Which thing, when Mattathias saw, he was inflamed with zeal and his reins trembled. Neither could he forbear to show his anger according to judgment. Wherefore he ran and slew him upon the altar. Also the king's commissioner, so the Greek man that was standing there, he killed him as well. Who compelled me to sacrifice, he killed at that time. And the altar he pulled down. Thus dealt he zealously for the law of God, like as Phineas did unto Zombri, the son of Shalom. And Mattathias cried throughout the city with a loud voice, saying, Whosoever is zealous of the law and maintains the covenant, let him follow me. So he and his sons fled into the mountains and left all that ever they had in the city. They turned their back on everything, left it all, congregated in the mountains. 12,000 Israelites surrounded them, and they literally took down the stronghold of the Greek empire. It's quite a story. It really is. Now, I can't go into it at any great level, but you can at least begin to see what happens inside of a brave-hearted man in a time when truth has fallen in the streets. His reins, it says, that's the innermost part, it trembles. It trembles. I don't know if you've ever had your reins tremble. 
I know what it feels like. And it's a very uncomfortable thing because you can, you, your, your face turns hot. And you're just thinking, God, if I do this, it'll cost me. Well, this cost this man everything. Within a year, he was killed. And then his sons begin to rise up after him. The Maccabee name. It means hammer, like I told you. This is the scripture that it comes from. Who is like you among the mighty heroes, O Lord? I'll show you. In the, in the Hebrew... See, look at the big words, the ones that are emboldened. It's me homocha. I, I didn't get that right. Mi homoka baalim Yahweh. That's the, the statement. But look at this. Maccabee. Maccabee. That's actually where the word Maccabees comes from, is from that scripture. Isn't that fascinating? It also, some, some would say it, that it also comes from this Gadite who was a great hero in David's army. And his name was Mach, Machbanai. One of the Gadite heroes that gave his strength unto David. The meaning of that man's name is clothed with the divine mantle of covenant. Isn't that great? I love it. So this is a scripture in First Chronicles of Machbanai. Some Gadites joined David at the stronghold in the wilderness. Mighty men of valor. Men trained for battle. Who could handle shield and spear. Whose faces were like the faces of lions. And were as swift as gazelles on the mountains. And so then it goes through and it lists 11 of them. And the 11th is Jeremiah the 10th and Machbani the 11th. And so some of the Jews would say, well that's where the, the name comes from as well. It's literally from one of the mighties under David. The strength of David's clan. Phineas. Now, do you remember it said, like unto Phineas who slew Zombri? Phineas is another incredible picture of the same thing that we're going to cover here. It says in Psalm 106, Then stood up Phineas and executed judgment. And so the plague was stayed, and that was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forever. Let's look a little closer at the story in Numbers. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. Do you remember uh, Balaam and his donkey? The king of Moab is literally saying, curse Israel. And for whatever reason, Balaam cannot curse. He ends up blessing instead. But there's something that is referenced as the doctrine of Balaam in the New Testament. Peter talks about it, and then in the book of Revelation it talks about it. And so Balaam seemed to give a doctrine of some kind. And it was a stumbling block which led the Israelites unto fornication. Whatever happens here immediately follows Balaam and his donkey. Same, same country, Moab. And what you see is an Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And if you don't know what whoredom is, trust me, it's not good. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat, and bowed down to their gods, and Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. You see, a curse is coming upon Israel. And so the heads of Israel are literally going to be hanged up and cursed. That's what it means to be hanged between the heavens and the earth. You are not worthy of heaven. You're not worthy of this earth. You hang in between the two. And as a result, the wrath of God will be satisfied. You should see uh, moments of the cross, shades of the cross coming out in that. 
And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses. This is actually in the sight of Moses. This man has such audacity as to take a foreign woman and to defile in front of Israel. And he goes into his tent with her, sort of snubbing his nose, saying, we will live as we want to live. So in the sight of Moses, in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, things are going very badly. Truth has fallen in the streets in Israel. What's a man to do? And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through. The man of Israel and the woman through her belly. I know, it's a nice picture. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And those that died in the plague were 20 and 4,000. 24,000 people died in this plague. And the Lord spoke unto Moses saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel. Why he was zealous for my sake among them, that I consumed not the children of Israel in my jealousy. God commends Phineas. When Mattathias the Maccabee rises up, that is literally what the Jews refer to as like unto Phineas, which in the Jewish culture is a huge statement. Like unto Phineas. How are you responding in such a time? Now, I want you to realize we're not picking up javelins and spearing people through the belly. That isn't our job description today. Our battle is not the same as Phineas's. It's not the same as Mattathias's. But what are you doing? Are you ready to rise up and to fight for the truth of the king in this generation? Wherefore say, Behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace, speaking of uh, Phineas, and he shall have it, and his seed after him, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made an atonement for the children of Israel. Now the name of the Israelite that was slain, even that was slain with the Midianitish woman, was Zimri, the son of Salu, a prince of the chief house among the Simeonites. William Wallace. Oh. So, for those of you that don't know, Ellerslie is the birthplace of William Wallace. I'm not saying this place. That's the historic birthplace of William Wallace is a place called Ellerslie. And so, the way we look at it, even though we might not market it this way, this is a birthplace of heroes. Or we could say a birthplace of a heroic mentality. An attitude of living that says, take me instead of them. No, no. If you're going to take someone, I'll be the one to take the blow. If a bullet's flying, there's a weak one here, what do we do? We're the ones that stand in front and take the hit instead. That's hero work, okay? And so William Wallace. Now, I can't go into all the story, unfortunately, of Mattathias and the Maccabees, Phineas, or even William Wallace. But I tell you what, this man lost everything, turned his back on every comfort to fight for the liberties of Scotland. It's an extraordinary story. And in the process... He had literally rescued Scotland twice from complete enslavement and disaster from the English army, which at that time was very wicked. The third time, what I'm going to read is a little selection from the book, The Scottish Chiefs, where Wallace is not welcomed in his country anymore. I mean, the injustice in this story makes your blood boil. But he's not welcome in his country anymore. So he literally comes back into his country to fight under the banner and under the name of a foreign man, Guy de Longville. 
He literally masqueraded as a foreign uh, guy who was a mercenary coming in to say, I'll fight for Scotland. And so literally he was fighting for Scotland as a foreigner, quote unquote, when this story happens. Scottish Chiefs, chapter 68, Roslyn. Indeed, so great was the havoc that the day must have ended in the universal destruction of every Scot in the field had not Wallace felt the crisis. And that as Guy de Longville, that was his disguise, he shed his blood in vain. In vain his terrified countrymen saw him rush into the thickest of the carnage. In vain he called to them by all that was sacred to man to stand to the last. But he's a foreigner. He's like, hey, all that is sacred to man, stand. But all the Scottish soldiers are fleeing. I mean, literally, it will be a universal destruction of all Scotland if something is not done now. This man, I tell you what, William Wallace, he goes straight into the danger. He did not care for his life. And so here he is fighting his guide to Longville. Not even appreciated in his country, but he loved his country. And so he sees everything falling apart. The battle has turned against the Scots. Woe is us if something is not done and done now. We need a brave-hearted man. Is there one out there? I love this scene. He was a foreigner, speaking of his, his disguise. And they had no confidence in his exhortations. Death was before them, and they turned to fly. The fate of his country hung on an instant. The last rays of the setting sun shone full on the rocky promontory of the hill, which projected over the field of combat. By the way, this was a children's book back in 1820. Okay? So there's this sun is beaming through, and there's this rocky promontory, or hill, that goes up. So Wallace runs up this hill. He took his resolution and spurring his steed up the steep ascent, stood on the summit where he could be seen by the whole army. Then taking off his helmet, he waved it in the air with a shout and having drawn all eyes upon him, suddenly exclaimed, Scots, you have this day vanquished the Southrons twice. If you be men, remember Cambus Kenneth and follow William Wallace to a third victory. He risks his life to do this. Do you know that he's immediately after this scene brought before the tribunal of Scotland and basically condemned? He lays down his life knowing that they will still kill him. It's extraordinary. Do you see shades of Christianity in this? It's not for the sake and the safety of your life. It's for the truth. Oh, I love it. If you be men, remember Cambus Kenneth and follow William Wallace to a third victory. The cry which issued issued from the amazed troops was that of a people who beheld the angel of their deliverance. Wallace was the charge word of every heart. The hero's courage seemed instantaneously diffused through every breast. And with braced arms and determined spirits forming at once into the phalanx, his thundering voice dictated. The Southrons again felt the weight of the Scottish steel. And a battle ensued which made the bright esque run purple to the sea. And covered the pastoral glades of Hawthornian with the bodies of its invaders. Go Wallace! Alright now, it's going to make it sound like I'm all into war. Okay? I'm not into war. I'm into brave-hearted masculinity. And I tell you what, that is the hardest moment to stand up. Why would Wallace stick around? What is he going to gain out of it? He's most likely going to be killed for the very people he's rescuing. But he loves something more than his life. 
do we as men? Built for the vulnerable. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. It's an interesting proverb. And I know, you see, we just read it and most of you didn't even catch it because it's a proverb. We don't actually think about proverbs at any deep level. But ponder this. The wicked flee when no one pursues. No one's even pursuing you when you flee. Why? Guilty. You see, you're hiding something. But the righteous have nothing to hide. They rip off their helmet, stand on the top of a promontory and say, by life or by death, let's win this battle. I don't care what happens to me. For truth, for the kingdom, for the king's glory. The righteous are as bold as a lion. I love that. Does that strike any fervor inside of you? The righteous are as bold as a lion? What's your position spiritually? You're in Christ, okay? So if you're in Christ, that, that means that you are the righteousness of God. You have the righteousness of God that clothes you. You are the righteous. Prove this proverb true in your life. The righteous are as bold as a lion. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Oh, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Remember what you're built strong for? Why are you built strong and brave-hearted? Why have you been given the strength, the resources that you have? It's so that you can give them. It's so that you can be spent. You do not just say to people, Oh, I'll pray a blessing of warmth and you know, a full stomach upon you. Meanwhile, you have a full pantry over here and you're not sharing what's in your pantry with those with, of an empty stomach. Something missing. See, we usually look at those that give to the weak and serve the poor and help the orphan and the widow as the compassionate ones. Well, I want you to realize the compassionate ones should do that. Absolutely. You know what men typically are described as? Not the compassionate ones, the just ones. We do that which is right. You need compassion and justice. And the justice is what's missing from the church today. Where we will not let this continue. They're bringing a pig up to Jehovah's altar. What are you going to do, men? They're literally whoring after the Moabites right in front of Moses. The man snubbing his nose in front of the congregation. Meanwhile, all Israel that cares about God is weeping. And this man right in front of them is defying all the leadership of Israel. What are you going to do? The army's fleeing. The English soldiers are confident they're going to run. Scottish soldiers down and it will be a universal destruction. They need a man in this hour. They need someone to rise up, remove his helmet, stick his sword in the air, and shout, Be men! Who's it going to be? Are we waiting for someone else to do it? This generation is begging for a William Wallace. It's begging for a Mattathias. It's begging for a Phineas. Stand in the gap. The word in the Greek, it's a phrase. It's amad peretz. Amad. To stand immovable. To rise implacable. To position oneself to endure the harshest winds. To march forward and persist in the darkest hour. To keep swinging the sword and remain steadfast, though all seem lost. 
to stand unflinching when the arrows fly, to plant your feet in the soil of danger and set your jaw for battle. Okay, we have a problem. We have a walled city and there's a gap in the wall. Where's the enemy coming through? The enemy's not going to scale the wall when they have a gap. What we need is a gap filler. God has always been looking for gap fillers. And the statement in scripture is, Ahmad Peretz, stand in the gap. It's the equivalent of, Andrizomai, stand in the gap. Ahmad Peretz, to your posts, men. The enemies, he's charging. The day looks lost. Ahmad Peretz, Andrizomai, be men this hour, right now. To stand immovable. You know how hard it would be to be a single man in a gap with a whole army coming through at you. You have to have some serious guts to stand in that situation. This is literally the command for men to lay down their lives. You lay down your life. What are you protecting? You're protecting all that is sacred inside that city. You see, this is your homeland. And you're a patriot. You give up your life to protect that which is entrusted to you. Ahmad. So, for all the girls that were feeling left out of this message, I'm going to show you literally one of the most profound pictures of standing in the gap. And so it was when the king saw Esther, the queen, Ahmad, in the court. She stood. She literally stood, risking her life, setting her jaw for battle. She knew that she may very well die. It was illegal to do what she was doing. But she had to do it for the people of Israel. And so it was when the king Esther saw the queen Ahmad in the court that she obtained favor in his sight and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. So the term stand in the gap is Ahmad Peretz. Peretz is the breach of vulnerability, a gap of exposure, a chink in the armor, the broken wall through which hell's minions fly. If you have a gap in the wall, you're vulnerable. And that's why we need a gap filler. The term in scripture is intercessor. It's someone who will fill the gap. Ahmad Peretz. To prove yourself a man in the harrowing gap. To stand immovable and implacable in the midst of the hazardous breach. To plant your feet in the way of peril in order to stop the onrush of hell's minions. Made strong, why? Why are you made strong? Why are you given the strength that you have? Why are you being given something that most of the world doesn't have? You have the gospel. You have an understanding of Jesus Christ. And for some reason, you're still here. He didn't just take you home to heaven. Which would make a lot more sense to some of us. Like, why does he just get us out of here? He's going to build you strong so that you can fill the gap. And you could say, well, I'd lose my life if that happened. Sure. Haven't you studied Christian history? The men and women of God were made strong and then a lot of them died. They poured out their strength. I know that sounds funny. It's like we live in America where we're self-preserving. We try and live as long as we can. We eat really healthy so that it will all, you know, 90s, at least 100. I mean, that's our goal. Jesus died at 33. And he's the pattern of brave-hearted masculinity. I'm not saying that we set our calendar and say, oh, okay, well, I have a few years left. That's God's business. The point is for us, we set our forehead towards Jerusalem. And we say, 
I'm headed there, the same place Jesus headed. How they treat me there is up to God. Thy will be done, not mine. Made strong to fill the gap. The time of the man. This message is like, gets me all pumped up. I love this stuff. The time of the man. When is the time of the man? When someone must stand, look no further than me. Is that the statement of our soul? If someone must stand, if someone must die today, imagine that someone had to take the hit today. Someone in this room had to die today. Would the men all rise up and say, let it be me? Could you imagine how inspiring that would be if every single one of the men, and young men included, rose up and said, let it be me? When someone must suffer, here I am, volunteering my body, my blood. When someone must go without, I choose to be the one. When a man is needed, may one be found right here. The cross, the time of the man. This is the hour. Someone must stand in the gap. Someone must intercede for the nation. Ahmad Peretz and Dridzomai Jesus. Stand firm. Stand strong. He's weak. He's literally sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, which is a sign that you're about to die. The man's life is being expended. He's standing in the gap, and all of hell's minions are pouncing upon him. He says, thy will, not mine. He is giving up his life in the gap. Even in Gethsemane, he was standing for us. Do you remember the high priestly prayer? It's the priest that stands in the gap. And the high priestly prayer was the garden of Gethsemane. Mattathias was a priest. Phineas, a priest. Do you know what you are? You're priests. Don't you know that you're the temple of the living God? Your entire job description is to do the ministry of the temple. You're the priests. You're the ones that stand in the gap. It's your hour. It's the time of the man. It's the time of Jesus. The cross. The time of the man. The manly exertion of obedience. I tell you what. In that hour, and I don't know how many of you have faced these moments where you know what you ought to do and you're feeling so weak. How can you move forward and do it? What do you do in such a moment as a man? You say, yes, Lord, even if your body doesn't agree. You exert in obedience to say, I will follow, even if you're ready to collapse. You belong to Jesus and you agree with Jesus. You have to allow him to supply all that is needed to get you there. The deliberate choice to suffer. Who in their right mind would ever choose to suffer? But as a man, what you say is, I understand what comes with this. If I'm going to Ahmad Peretz, I recognize the fact that I may not live today. By the end of it, I may be spent. So be it. The purposeful giving up of strength on behalf of the weak. This is a quote from a 12-year-old Ellerslie student. Men, may it not be said of this semester that the women had to be the men. So let me translate that into the Church of Ellerslie. Church of Ellerslie, the men of the Church of Ellerslie, may it not be said of this church that the women had to be the men. That's from a 12-year-old. Okay, I'm still a little shocked that he's 12. Still doesn't make any sense to me. (laughs) But I want you to realize that is a challenge to every single one of us. Someone is going to take a hit. 
The enemy is out to kill, destroy, to rob. Who is going to be the one that gets the hit? Who receives the blow? The man says, if instead of the weak receiving it, I'm going to stand in front. You know, there's 163 million orphans that are taking the hit right now. And what are we doing? We're not getting much of a hit. It's like, well, it's on the other side of the world. You know, it's not on the other side of the world. What do we have, 700,000 kids in the foster care system right here in America? 700,000 kids taking a hit in our backyard. What, what are we going to do about it? May it not be said of us, the church of Jesus Christ in this generation, that the women had to be the men. Who are the ones typically responding to the weak? That's the women. What are we doing? Brave-hearted men are the ones that are supposed to lead the charge. It doesn't mean women aren't supposed to respond. It just means we are supposed to lead. We set the tone. We don't have to be marked by compassion. We will be. We're marked by what is right. That pig is not supposed to be offered on the altar of Jehovah. You don't have to feel compassion for someone in the crowd. You feel a righteous indignation for the glory of your God. That little child will not take the penalty, will not take the blow. Jesus loves that little child. And he has given me strength to be spent for that little child. That's the thinking patterns of the brave-hearted man. Have you ever heard it said that Jesus would have died for you alone? Now, it could just be a nice-sounding phrase. But I want you to realize it's true. The love that he has for the individual is so extreme that I would like to say it this way, that for God so loved you as an individual, for God so loved that little orphan that he gave his only begotten son, that if that little guy would believe in Jesus, he would find eternal life. It needs to be personalized because when it's personalized, we begin to realize that Jesus Christ came and stood in the gap for the little ones, not just for a big mob of us, but for each of us as individuals. It's very important to see. Built for this hour, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. You know, when it gets tough, when it gets difficult, what are you going to pray? Save me from this hour. That's what Jesus is asking. Should I say to my Father, save me from this hour? It's for this cause that I came unto this hour. Don't you know what a man is built for? Don't you realize that God is setting up your life for such an hour? That's the hour of the man. That's the time of the man. Every man should dream of it. All growing up, we're dreaming of making the final winning shot in the championship game in the NCAA tournament. We're picturing the podium where we receive the gold medal at the Olympics and they play our national anthem. We have the wrong mental picture of the hour of a man. The hour of a man is literally being spent and giving up everything for the glory of King Jesus. That's the hour we dream of. That's what we envision. We put movie score, Steve Rosen movie score, soundtracks behind it. And in our minds, we picture what it would be to rise up in such a moment when every other man sits. And rising up and shouting, men, men of God, we cannot 
not heed this any longer. I call forth the men in here to follow me. And you leave everything behind in the city and you flee to the mountains. Who is ready to follow Jesus? <laughs> Mordecai and Esther. You'll notice that this is sort of like a little play with the two characters there. I'm just separating out the two characters. Mordecai, who is one of the chiefs at the gate uh, for King Asuherus, and is also the uncle of Esther, finds out that there is a scheme of Haman's to destroy all the Jews. Remember how I said this is the hour? We are built for such an hour? You know that that very statement is so concurrent and resonant with this exact scene in the book of Esther. And yet it's a woman. Because we are the bride. In a sense, we find ourselves in this situation where we, Jesus stood in the gap. And then we, a frail bride, if you will, are being commissioned to stand in the hour of need. Mordecai says, if thou altogether hold thy peace, Esther, at this time, then there shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. He basically says, Esther, if you don't stand, I want you to realize God will still come through for the Jews. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knows whether thou art come to this kingdom for such a time as this. How do you know that you were not born in this generation? for such a time as this. You know what I was pondering with Les? I was talking out loud. I actually don't know if she even heard what I was saying. We were in the midst of, midst of something busy. But I had this thought. I just was trying to articulate it. You know that we are born in one of the most amazing time periods in all of history. And you know what? We happen to be born in America. We were educated and we were given strength we know things that very few people in all of history have ever known, and we have a clear hold on the gospel. And I was trying to process it through, and I'm processing it through for all of us. We've been given not just a little strength, but a lot of it. And if we were to leverage that strength, we are in a position, those of us in this room are in a position to have a greater impact on world history, on the course of Christianity that maybe hardly anyone before us but most of us are complaining about the times in which we live because the church is going south. We're sliding off the cliff. And what should the men in here do? A little wry smile and says, this is the hour of the man. This is the hour when men are needed right now. Oh, I love it. I love being alive right now. So what does Esther say? I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. It's going to be illegal, Mordecai. I'm going to do it. And if I perish, I perish. Well, that's, that's the manly stuff right there. Coming out of, a, out of a pretty girl named Esther. The patriot. See, most of us instinctively like the word patriot. I was just out in New England uh, yesterday, and I was talking to some men, and I was talking about patriotism, because I was, this was on my head, in my mind when I was talking to them. And this one guy has this big sweatshirt, his patriots on. I go, oh, I guess I'm speaking your language. I was, uh, but this is, uh, it's a very important word. I want you to realize every single one of us wants to be a patriot. We just don't know what it means. It comes from two key Greek roots, pater and patria. You'll notice the word patria, if you put a T on the end, patriot, Okay. 
So pater means father. Patriot means fatherland. It's the land of a father. Okay? So a patriot is the father instinct for the fatherland. Someone messes with my kids, guess what? I have a father instinct for my fatherland. And I'm a patriot for my home. See, most of us only think of patriotism for our country. You know, someone's invading our country. No? How about patriotism for your own soul? This is the father's land. And you have an instinct to protect it. How about your marriage? How about your family? How about your church? How about your local community? You see, you have been given a range, a trust, and it's called the fatherland, if you will, and you've been given an instinct as a man to preserve that which is in your trust. So here's my definition down at the bottom here. The zealous, brave-hearted preserver of the entrusted range. That's a patriot. Now here's a quote from Scottish chiefs. God armeth the patriot. God armeth the brave-hearted soldier that protects his range. If you stand up as a man to preserve your range, okay, if you start messing with these precious kids here, you know, if there's a patriot down in the front row here that will make your life rather miserable, his name's Mike Hahn. You don't mess with his range. He's a patriot, okay? He's a father-hearted man. He is a brave-hearted soldier. That's what it is. God armeth the brave-hearted soldier. Now look at this scripture in 2 Kings. This is amazing. So shall you keep the watch of the house, that it shall not be broken down. And you shall compass the king round about, every man with his weapons in his hand. And he that comes within the ranges. This is in the days of Queen Athalia. And they were protecting the rightful king of Israel. And anyone that came within the ranges, the priests, the priests were to slay. Let him be slain, and be ye with the king as he goes out and as he comes in. And to the captains over hundreds, listen to this line, this is very important. And to the captains over hundreds did the priest give King David's spears and shields that were in the temple of the Lord. What were they armed with? What were the priests of the temple armed with? Okay, this is about as exciting as it gets. They were armed with King David. This is from years ago. This would be like be going into the mothballs in the temple. Covered in dust, haven't been used since King David's time. And the priests, to protect the rightful king in their generation, were entrusted David's spears and shields. You need to see that quote again. God armeth the patriot. What does he give you? King David's spears and shields. In our case, you know what we get? King Jesus' armor, King Jesus' sword. Uh, you know, we would, most of us would be very excited to get David's sword, you know, that decapitated Goliath. Like, oh, could you imagine wielding that? You have Jesus' sword that he decapitated all the powers of earth and hell. Uh-huh. The intercessor, the gap filler, the patriot, the priest. Judgment is turned away backward, and justice stands afar off, for truth has fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. And he saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness, it sustained him. There's no intercessor. The paga, the intercessor. The one who strikes upon an encroaching enemy. The man who intercedes against a threat. The one who meets the opposition with force. The one who brings peace through war, will, and intervention. God's patriot armed with Davidic strength in order to stand for the weak. Judgment is turned away backward. And justice stands afar off, for truth has fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. And he saw that there was no man, and wondered there was no paga. 
Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness, it sustained him. Where is the paga in our day? You have not gone up into the parets, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to Ahmad in the battle in the day of the Lord. Ahmad means to stand. Peretz means the gap. Where is the man who will Ahmad Peretz in this generation? And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge. And Ahmad Peretz before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. There was no man. What's happening? Guess what? God did find himself a man. His name was Jesus. Who stood in the gap and Ahmad Peretzed for us. The hour of need. Someone will receive a blow. Either a nail must be pounded in, steel must be bent, or stone must be cracked. A hammer is called upon. And for this cause you were born. For such a time as this, spend yourself. Take your stand. Do not cower. Do not retreat. Do not back down. Steal the spine. Rise up and take the blow. Enter the fray. And Dridzomai, quit you like a man. Following the mighties. These are the mighties throughout history that literally filled the gap. Job, when the widow was in danger, the orphan vulnerable, and the poor in need of a defender. Moses, when God's judgment rested squarely on the head of all Israel. Phineas, when Zimri openly mocked the righteous law. David, when Goliath defied the armies of the living God. Eleazar, when the Philistines sought to take Pazdamin by sword. Joab, when the Jebusites publicly mocked King David. Joshobian, when 800 Philistines threatened his king's domain. Josiah, when Israel had gone astray and the house of God was defiled. Hezekiah, when the Assyrian king mocked the powers of God to save. Mattathias, when a fellow Israelite ascended to the altar to sacrifice a profane thing upon the pure altar of Jehovah. Athanasius, when the deity of Jesus Christ was challenged by the church of his day. Wallace, when the English ransacked and raped his homeland, Scotland, defiling it for their pleasure. Luther, when the truth of the gospel was traded out for a lie. Jesus When in our rebellion we claimed ourselves gods and thus invited the wrath of God upon our sorry heads, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. The brave-hearted man, the man of 100%. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Speaking of Jesus, he partook and shared in flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver all those who were subject to lifelong slavery. That's the paga, the intercessor, the brave-hearted man. Listen to this statement. This is a statement about the priest, the high priest Jesus. I'm going to skip a little just to get to the conclusion here. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I want you to realize this is not just a commission to the men in here to rise up and be men and to give 100% in all situations and to spend what they have on the weaker around them. But it is to know where the strength comes from. You cannot be a man in your own strength, your own willpower, your own grit, and your your own determination. You need that high priest who has been an intercessor for you to save you. And you need him to save you to the uttermost. He is able to save you to the uttermost. Which means, yes, he's helped you out so far, but you know what? You need more help today. 
And you need more help tomorrow. And you need more help the next day. And your God who saved you 2,000 years ago is still in the business of saving you. And being Ahmad Peretz and standing in the gap for you today. The enemy is coming against you as a mighty host. And guess what? Your God is your shield. The rescue shelter. Remember 1999, Y2K? One of the things I've oftentimes mentioned is what Focus on the Family did is they became a rescue shelter. Everyone else was concerned about their own baked beans and bottled water, their own compressors. But Focus on the Family did a very strange thing. They actually created a rescue shelter because it's in the middle of winter here in Colorado. You don't know what's going to happen. No one knew what was going to happen. And so they made a rescue shelter. Anyone in Colorado Springs that would have need, they could come there. You know, as far as I'm concerned, that's Christianity. What's a brave-hearted man? He's a rescue shelter. In a time of crisis, where should the people of this earth turn? And we could say, well, to Jesus. Yeah, but what if they don't know Jesus? To the followers of Jesus. And they would know that we would give them all the strength we have. If we have baked beans in our cabinet, we give it to them. Well, what if we go without? That would mean we would starve. Sure. That's fine. The weak need our strength. The weak have access to our pantry. Don't you realize why you even have a pantry? Look what Jesus did with his pantry. He emptied it for you. And you're going to hold on to your pantry? Come on. You take your pantry and you open it up. The rescue shelter. The brave-hearted soldier fully exposes his life to the harrowing dangers of war. Not considering his own skin and how he can save it. But rather how he might spend it for the benefit of others. So here's the pattern for a brave-hearted man. A man first must, be, must first be clothed in the divine mantle of covenant. Remember that word for Maccabees, the Gadites who had a face like a lion? His name meant the divine mantle of covenant. We must be clothed in Jesus Christ, the divine mantle of covenant. Then this man is quickened to become a covering of strength, a shield for the weak, a strong refuge for the vulnerable, a provision for the hungry, naked, and oppressed, a father to the fatherless, a defender of the widow, and a covert from the storm. He becomes a very real rescue shelter in a time of crisis. You know that your home could be a rescue shelter? You know that your life could be a rescue shelter? I want you to have a meditation today. I want you to realize it's not an accident that the His Little Feet Choir is presenting today. And I want you to meditate as they sing. And I want you to allow each of these kids to be symbolic of the 163 million. And I want us to ask ourselves as the church of Jesus Christ, is this the hour or not? There is a huge need in this world. But Christians have to open up their pantry. Christians have to open up their lives. They have to give the strength that they've been given. If we hold on to it, we die. This is the hour for the brave-hearted man to arise and to lead his home and to say, Honey, I'm in agreement with you. We need to do more. We need to make our life available. We need for the justice and the righteousness of it to do it. The compassion will come, men. It will. But you do what is right because God did what was right for you. Father, for the King and the King's glory, prepare our hearts. May we become rescue shelters. May we open up our pantry, our homes. 
For the young kids in here, may they open up their parents and say, my parents can be parents for others. And for the parents in here, that they would open up their lives and say, but I could be parents for others. Lord, that we wouldn't just say, be warm and well fed, but that we would engage in this battle in this time of need and that we would be brave-hearted soldiers. We would meet the enemy at the greatest point of threat. And Lord Jesus, may you get the glory out of your church. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.